last line. It's so beautiful from Psalm 119. Your commandments have no bounds. That God's law, God's word is not restrictive and oppressive the way that we can sometimes uh, think of it as, but God's word rather um, gives freedom. I think it was J. Gresham Machen who said it is the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, that true freedom comes through the word. And so this afternoon we think about how that word enables us to truly worship God in the way that he has commanded. We'll um, read first from Exodus 32, story of the golden calf, and then also from Deuteronomy 4 in connection with Lord's Day 35 in our catechism as we work our way through the Ten Commandments. Exodus 32, it says that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to gather to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. They will also read from Deuteronomy chapter 4. The first 24 verses, God says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. 
Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at the Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you have held fast to the Lord your God. But you who have held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding of the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach your statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And to beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Uh, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, for I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You can turn in the back of your hymnals to uh, Lord's Day 35, where we'll read questions 96 through 98 together responsively. Page 890 in the back of your hymnal, the uh, teaching of the church on the second commandment, summarizing what God's word teaches. First it says, question 96, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? 
that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. 97, may we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. And the 98, but may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Beloved, you don't have to look far to realize we live in a culture that is increasingly visual. There was a time when it was far more common for people to read the newspaper. Now they simply watch the news. There was a time when people read books. Now they watch movies that are based on those books. Likewise, in the church, there was a time when when churches would uh, have extensive scripture reading in their services, but but now they opt for uh, movie clips, or maybe they have skits, or maybe they show the passion of the Christ instead of reading about Christ's passion in the Word. And so regardless of what we might think about certain, certain cultural developments, What are we to think about the fact that these changes have taken place even in the church? Are we to see it as the church properly capitalizing on a a cultural trend, or are we to view it as something else? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says, Watch yourselves very carefully, for you saw no form on the day the Lord your God spoke to you from the fire. Do not act corruptly and, and make for yourself a carved image. And so I don't, don't think God views it as, as properly capitalizing on a, a cultural trend, particularly when, when those um, images or pictures are, are some depiction of God himself. I don't think we should, should view it as properly capitalizing on a cultural trend either. God says, you saw no form, you only heard a voice. And that voice that spoke to them the word of God was sufficient and still is. And it's by recognizing the the sufficiency of that word that we honor the Lord and love him. Remember how Christ summarized the first four commandments. They're ultimately about loving God. Which means that, that worshiping him rightly is one of the ways that we do that. And so we need to let his word have primacy. And as we do, uh, he will be honored and we will be blessed. Because God's purpose in giving us the second commandment is both for his glory and for our good. For in it, God graciously guards us from false worship by giving us his word. His word which regulates our worship, uh, safeguards our worship, and is sufficient for our worship. Think of me first about how God's word regulates our worship. 
does this by prohibiting the use of images or the worship of God in any other way than he is commanded. Question 96, God's will for us in the second commandment is that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way that has been commanded in his word. Our worship is according to the word. Deuteronomy 4, he says you only heard a voice. You didn't see a form. That voice, the word of God, was enough. You didn't need the form. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2 is is explicit. It says, don't add to my word. Verse 16, don't act corruptly and make a carved image. Verse 23, take heed lest you forget the covenant that the Lord your God made with you and make for yourself a carved image in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. The Lord our God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. This is why he responds with such anger in Exodus 32 when Israel has Aaron make for them a golden calf. God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Did you notice at the very end of Deuteronomy 4, verse 24 that we read, it says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God. I think that's a reference back to Exodus 32 where God in his jealousy burned against his people. It's a reference back to Exodus 32 which, which was not so much a first commandment violation as it was a second commandment violation. They, they were not primarily worshiping a false God. They were worshiping God falsely. Exodus 32, 4, they said of the golden calf, this is is your God, or these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And then what did Aaron say? He said, so tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Uh, They believed that they were worshiping God. So they set up an altar, they they had a feast, believed that they were worshiping God. John Calvin says this was the original source of, of idolatry that men suppose they could not otherwise possess God unless by subjecting him to their own imagination. Nothing, however, could be more preposterous, for since the minds of men and all our senses sink far below the the loftiness of God, when we try to bring him down to the measure of our own weak capacity, we travesty him. The Calvinist saying God is far above us. When we try to bring him down to our own weak capacity, we do not do him justice. Israel had not been forgive, uh, given permission to, to fashion God according to their imagination. Rather, God's word expressly forbade it. And, and when the God we worship tells us in his word how he is to be worshipped, it's not wise to go against his orders. And so we strive for every part of our worship to be reformed according to Scripture. In fact, that's what reformed is shorthand for, reformed according to the Scriptures. The Reformation was not just about um, justification. It wasn't just about the the, um, authority of the Scriptures, but central even to the Reformation was the worship that God, uh, the worship that God's people offered him. It was a reformation of worship as much as it was a reformation of those other things. And, and so we believe in what we call the regulative principle of worship. That God is so rightly jealous for his glory that he tells us in his word how he's to be worshipped. 
That's what the second commandment is. God telling his people, not just who is to be worshipped, as in the first commandment, or that he is to be worshipped, but how he is to be worshipped. And so by not having a Jesus statue or a stained glass Jesus behind me or, or by not having a service that's filled with skits and videos and props in our worship, we're not being legalistic or old-fashioned, but we're trying to honor our master's instructions by neither worshiping him according to the image nor worshiping him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. We're trying to honor our master's instructions. Our children understand this. We ask them to to help us around the house or in the yard. And and, uh, boys and girls, your mom and dad tell you to to do something because they are the ones who who know how to do it. And and they're the one that you're you're serving. You're not being legalistic by by trying to keep their instructions as exactly as you can. But but you're honoring them. You're doing what's best for you. Because God knows what's best for us, and because he knows how he wants to be worshipped, we worship him according to his word. One pastor, um, Richard Phillips, described it this way. He he said something like, if you were to, um, husbands, if you were to throw a a surprise birthday party for your wife, um, you would do well to figure out what what sorts of things your wife likes. Hopefully you you know those already, but but you would do well to find out what kind of cake she likes, what kind of people she wants there, what kinds of things she likes to do. It's not about you doing all of your preferences. It's about you uh, doing what, what she would like in order to serve her. And because worship is not fundamentally for us, but it's for God, we're to worship him according to his preferences, his preferences that he's given us in his word. Our worship is to be dictated or regulated by the word of God. And, and so when we gather together, we, we read his word, we sing his word, we pray his word, we preach his word, then we respond to his word with our gifts and offerings for the furtherance of that word. And we see his word signified in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and the baptism, uh, both of which must be ad- ad- administered in connection with that word and may not be administered um, apart from it, apart from the preaching of the word. Everything that we do is according to the word and is saturated with the word. And we don't go beyond it because we worship God in the way that he has commanded. We, we allow our worship to be regulated by the word of God. But not only does God's word regulate our worship, it also safeguards our worship. Because by, by keeping us from doing any of these things that God has, has forbidden or that God doesn't explicitly command, he is graciously protecting us. He's, he's helping us. You think of another example. When you play a board game at home with your, your family, it, it tends to go a lot better when, when you know and understand the rules. If you uh, play a game without reading the instructions, you, you might be able to enjoy it to an extent, but you're missing out on all of the, the intricately designed instructions that the makers of the game wanted you to have for your good. Um, following the instructions is better. It, it protects you from doing things that you're not supposed to, from, from playing the game according to your imagination. Really, in a sense, not playing the game at all. Instead, you're, you're playing something else. Say you're, you're, you're playing a lie, you're, you're playing something false. God's word keeps us 
from playing a lie. For when we disregard his instructions and do whatever we want as we worship him, that's, that's not true worship. We're worshiping our ideas. That's what Israel was doing with the golden calf. They thought that they were having a feast to the Lord. They thought that they were worshiping God. They thought that they were rightly capitalizing on the, the normal media of their ancient Near East culture to represent the pagan gods, a calf or a bull. But God had already demonstrated his power over those gods just a few months before with the ten plagues. Had they so quickly forgotten? God rescued them from Egypt. God gave them the Passover. God gave them his law and as spirit he was present with them in the pillar of fire and and cloud that went before them. But they flipped that all on its head. Ten Commandments begin, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Then in just the second commandment, they're told not to worship God in any other way than he's commanded. But they disregard his command by making a golden calf. They disregard the fact that he was already present with them. They flip his words on their head. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt because these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And as if the Passover, which God had graciously provided as yet another reminder of his presence, wasn't enough, they make their own feast. Nothing about their worship is based on truth. Rather, it is based on a denial of God's presence with them, a denial of the sufficiency of the means of grace provided in the sacramental meal of the Passover, a denial of his supremacy over the pagan gods around them, and a denial that he is the one who determines how he's to be worshipped. Likewise, when we invent our own ways to worship God, because the ways that he's provided don't, uh, don't seem to be enough, nothing about that is based on truth. I once heard someone say, worship is our gift to God, and so, so we get to decide how to do it. Thinking back to that birthday party analogy, you can see how that's a little bit unhelpful. The point isn't doing it the way that we want to do it. He said, worship is our gift to God, so we get to decide how to do it. And this, this person uh, held the title in his church, pastor of worship. He's making the same mistake that Israel's pastor of worship, Aaron, made. By the way, it's interesting, if you, you read on in Exodus 32, down in verse uh, 22, as, as Aaron is rebuked, he, he says to Moses, but Moses, you know the people, how they're set on evil. Implied as Moses that we need to be sensitive to their, their needs and the desires of the people. We need to be seeker sensitive, consumer driven in our worship. We need to give them what they want. First of all, it's not the way to, to, to lead. Letting the sheep decide how the shepherd would lead them in worship. But, but second, that, that begs the question, uh, why is it that the people wanted to worship God in this way? Why are we always looking for something more? Uh, the images which, which the second commandment and our catechism forbid are just one example of that. Notice it says in question 97, God cannot and may not be visibly represented. He may not because it's forbidden, and he cannot because it would be a lie. It wouldn't be God. Just like the golden calf, it sinks far below his loftiness. When we have pictures of God or pictures of Christ in worship, is that him? Because nothing about those pictures 
is based on truth. God, in his kindness and in his wisdom, didn't see fit to provide us with a description of Christ's physical appearance. The only thing the Bible tells us is that there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. Yet how many pictures do we see of a perfectly groomed Savior who fits the exact opposite of that description? Pictures that are not based on divine revelation, but human imagination. Deuteronomy 4, 2, don't add to my word, it's enough. Like the way the old Puritan Thomas Watson put it, he, he said, would it not be absurd to bow down to a king's picture when the king is there present? And he says, is it not even more so absurd than to bow down to an image of God when God himself is here present with us? That was the point of Deuteronomy 4. I'm present with you by my word. You, you don't need to see my form. My word is enough. These images serve no useful purpose. Question 98, we must not try to be wiser than God who will not have his people taught by images but by the lively preaching of his word. His word is sufficient. In fact, that the Belgic Confession, this is a little bit clear in the old uh, Blue Psalter's rendition of it, but the Belgic Confession applies the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture to the whole manner of worship that God requires of us. And yet we live in a day where that sufficiency is denied. I was struck several years ago when I, I read the preface to a popular daily devotional where the, and the author actually said, uh, I, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, that I yearned for more. And so she claims that God speaks to her and, and gives her messages, which she then publishes in her devotional as if written by God in the first person. That devotional has sold millions of copies, but the whole premise is that what God has already given isn't enough. It's dangerous. But it's not all that different from, from believing that the reading and, and preaching of God's word for us and our children isn't enough, but, but that we need those other means. These are, these are serious errors. Errors that the... the uh, fathers of the Reformation were, were intent on helping us to avoid. We are to be people of the word. And yet as serious as, as these errors are, there is another danger that we can't overlook as we think about the second commandment. Where in light of everything that we've just said, it would be easy for us to think that if we just avoid pictures of Jesus, if we just keep our liturgy simple and, and don't read that devotional that I just mentioned, then we're good. Just attend a church with a regulative principle and, and feel like that makes God pleased with us and so we, we can check off another box. But how often do we worship God according to lies in ways that, that just out, aren't outwardly detectable? We might not fashion a golden calf, but we do have small thoughts of God that, to use the words of Calvin, sink far below his loftiness. Sometimes we have a low view of God's grace, either in making it so cheap that we can just live however we want as long as we ask forgiveness, or in thinking that his grace is somehow insufficient and, and you must do something more than what Christ has already done. If you approach God based on either one of those misconceptions, you are worshiping God according to a lie. Or maybe you worship a God who's, who's not omnipresent or not omniscient. You think that he can't 
see what you're, you're thinking in your heart about why you'd rather not be here. Or about how you're angry at that brother or sister across the pew or the thoughts that you're thinking about another brother's wife. Or the thoughts that you were thinking yesterday. Do you worship a God who is not omnipresent, who is not omniscient? Or maybe you worship a God who, who is a tyrant. Who, because any one of those thoughts might have slipped into your mind, now demands that you make payment. Who, who demands perfect Sabbath observance, perfect Sunday attire, perfect attendance at a church that perfectly observes the regulative principle and a perfect record of daily devotions. Otherwise, he will cut you off. Because that's not the true God either. Or do you worship a progressive God? A God who no longer cares what the Bible says about sexuality or gender or divorce or what you do with your boyfriend or girlfriend who's not yet your spouse. You worship a God who can be paid off with money, who doesn't mind that you you live like a pagan and mistreat your employees and cheat on your taxes as long as you give him a 10% tithe. Or do you worship God in pride? thinking that your decision to come to worship or your decision to go to a certain kind of church is what grants you favor before him. Forgetting you are always dependent on his mercy, especially when you come into his house so easily distracted, thinking such low thoughts of him. You see that, that just because you go to a church with biblical worship does not necessarily mean that your worship is biblical. What's your view of God? Edmund Clowney says of the second commandment, avoiding statues or pictures does not guarantee that you are keeping the second commandment. To establish any idol in your heart is to forsake him. Any idol that functions as the focus of your worship, even if it has no physical representation. And of that, we're all guilty. Every one of us is guilty of of having thoughts that sink far below the loftiness of God, of worshiping him in pride, of of worshiping him in a way that that abuses his grace or or, uh, neglects his holiness. But in our third point, the Lord God provides the solution to our sin, to our false worship. We saw first how God's word regulates our worship, then we saw how it safeguards our worship Now we see how it is sufficient for our worship. That's why question 98 says that God will not have his people taught by images, but he will have us to be taught by the lively preaching of his word. Deuteronomy 4 says, you saw no form, you only heard a voice. God's word is enough. And the reason why I say that his word is is the solution to all of the ways that we violate the second commandment, either with our blatant false worship or with our our low thoughts of God, is because of what God's word contains. What is the, the central message of the word of God? It is God graciously condescending to his sinful people by way of covenant, which is fulfilled in his son who lived the perfect life that we could not and died in our place on the cross. Jesus says in John chapter five to the Pharisees that you search the scriptures in vain because you think that in them you have life and that you do not realize that they testify of me. The central message of the scriptures is Christ, the solution to all our sin. 
Here in God's word, Christ is presented more clearly than any picture or any mental misconception could ever do justice. Here God provides a perfect picture of himself in his word and he gives us visible words in the sacraments. We don't need Jesus with us through images. Romans 10 says he's right here with us when the word of God is faithfully preached. The second Helvetic Confession says that in hearing the voice of the preacher, we're hearing the voice of Christ who is speaking to us even through weak vessels. Not only is he present with us through the preaching of the word, but he is present with us in the supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the cup that we bless and the bread that we break. Is it not a participation, a communion in and with the Lord Jesus? He's present with us as we pray and call upon his name and exercise discipline in his name, Matthew chapter 18. This is far better This is why the word of God is sufficient. Then notice also how God's alternative to our our, our false worship, namely word and sacrament, is also the, the solution or the cure to our false worship. Because again, what is the the central theme of all our preaching? What is the central theme and message in baptism and the Lord's Supper? It's the gospel. It's the good news that despite our disobedience to him and despite our refusal to worship him in a way that is acceptable, God's wrath is turned away by a mediator. That's the point of the supper. That's the point of baptism. That's what we hear every week, the assurance of part of the preaching of the word. God's wrath is turned away by a mediator, which is the same thing that we saw in Exodus 32. Just as as Moses pled with God not to pour out his wrath on his people because of their sinful worship, Christ stood between us and God and, and, and took God's wrath for our sin and our false worship upon himself. God's wrath for our low thoughts of him, God's wrath for our irreverent worship, God's wrath for our images, God's wrath for our self-centered, arrogant, easily distracted worship. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24 says that God is a consuming fire. Exodus 32, Moses, or or God says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. But Christ, as the greater Moses, the, the merciful mediator, says in effect, Father, let your wrath burn hot against me. Because it did, we we can be forgiven of all the ways that we fail to keep the second commandment. I hope you see this afternoon that that's, that's all of us. None of us have, have properly kept it. None of us can escape, but Christ is the solution. He is the one who is the subject of that lively preaching of the word that Lord's Day 35 commends. And so don't just dwell on all of the ways that this law exposes you, but dwell on all the ways that Christ delivers you, and as you do, let his mercy then become your motivation to keep this commandment and worship him according to his word out of gratitude. That's what we see already in in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. God called his people to keep this command in view of his mercy. Exodus 20, verse 2, God already had delivered them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He promises yet more mercy, even in, in this second commandment. He says he will show mercy to thousands who love him and keep his commandments. And it's in that context that he calls us away from our false worship, motivated 
by his mercy, both his past mercy and the hope also of his future mercy. His past mercy in providing a mediator in Jesus Christ to redeem us and his future mercy, which Revelation 22 says will culminate in that day when Christ, our mediator, returns and we will see his face. And all of our longings for something more will be satisfied. But until then, God says, look to Christ. Look to him in the preaching of his word. Look to him in the sacraments that he's appointed. My gracious means of guarding you from false worship. May God be pleased as we seek to worship him according to his word. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which is sufficient and your sacraments, the only divinely appointed visual aids for our worship. Lord, we thank you for how in them you speak to us and dwell with us. And we pray that you would help us to see the sufficiency of these things so that we would not go looking for more. We pray that you would also guard us, Lord, from any small thoughts of you, any theological pride, misconceptions of your grace that distort our worship. Lord, we pray that we would worship you in truth in response to your grace to us in Christ as we long for that day when we will behold his face. And until then, ask that we would see Jesus in word and sacrament and be satisfied with that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.